The following episode is from the Bloody Blunts Archive, as a part of November's potluck of past releases. This episode was recorded June 2021 for Pride Month, but here on the podcast, we appreciate queer horror any month, so enjoy the episode. BBCC episode 52, my realization of the day. Identity and sex are very integral when it comes to queer horror. Um, thinking on my spooky coming of age, Tim Burton had a big effect on me as it did for many, including my sexual awakening. Between Edward Scissorhands and uh, other queer icon, Catwoman, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, between these two queer icons clad in leather, I don't know which one did it more for me, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Let's go ahead and get into the episode. Hello, hello, all you beautiful creatures out there. It is your boy, Devon Taylor, a.k.a. underscore Daddy Disco on Twitter and Instagram, and this is the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. This is a podcast where every month we dive into a different area of the horror genre and break it down into its subgenres and all those good things. And we are kicking off a new series with this episode. Uh, In case you guys didn't realize, of course, we're going to talk a bunch of queer horror this month. I am super excited for the lineup of guests and movies that I have in store for you guys. We are going into every nook and cranny of the queer community and exploring it through um, some very interesting horror films. So I am very excited to get into that. Speaking of, I do have our first guest waiting in the wings. They are a graphic designer and writer for the Ghouls magazine with a book and podcast on the way. I am super excited to welcome Ren Crane to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super, super excited. Um, we, we have such similar tastes, I've realized online, so we have had somewhat wonderful discourse, so I was very excited to get you onto the podcast. And we're starting it off on a on a real fucked up note. Uh, we're, we're getting weird with the Cronenbergs today. Um, we will be talking Possessor and Shivers. Um, so I'm super excited to delve into that, but of course we want to get to know Ren a smidge more. So go ahead and uh, describe your connection to the queer horror community or what these stories mean to you yeah I mean I always loved horror and the community is really the only part I've ever interacted with and it's just because they were the most welcoming to me right from the beginning like Mm -hmm. when I went into it I was like a questioning queer person that didn't really know who I was and then I met a bunch of people like me who saw themselves in films the same way I did. I met all these people like me and they just really gave me the space to figure out who I was. And one of those people was Terry from Gaily Dreadful. Mm -hmm. He 
hosted Netflix parties for everyone. And it was kind of where I really found that first sense of community with everyone online. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. We I love Terry. He is uh, fantastic. And now, same, he was uh, somebody that um, definitely I started interacting with more. And, you know, because I've been writing for horror websites for a minute and doing podcasts and stuff. And, and neither this podcast or my writing do I focus on, on um, queer subjects as much. Not that they aren't important to me as a queer person, but it's not um, at the forefront of what I do with like my writing and stuff. But his writing and his website, you know, definitely encouraged me to uh, definitely take a look at things in a different light. And once I kind of started embracing it more, then as I started watching more horror movies and like listening to like horror queers and stuff as well, like just the more queer readings just like came more naturally. And and then I like kind of embraced it a little more in, in the way that I started watching films, whether whether they were outwardly queer or not, you know. So I like the yeah. the natural progression. That was kind of my experience with it as well. Like I was always a writer, but I never really, I, I just never really felt like I had, I knew what I wanted to say about queer subjects. And then the more I read into films and picked apart what I personally connected with instead of like on a different way to what other people were connecting with. And that was just really what did it for me. Yeah, it's and and that's what makes it more fun when there's not the the pressure that you're putting on yourself and then you kind of just like watch it and then it just like kind of happens by itself. Um it, it is so much more fun and like that's what's kind of happened on like, you know, certain episodes of the podcast. Uh, again, like I wouldn't label this podcast like a queer horror podcast, but it's it's a horror podcast, but quite often I'm just like finding the the more uh, subtext that I can squeeze out of certain movies like uh, go back and listen to the um, the Tremors episode because Tremors is uh, basically a gay love story mashed with a monster movie um, so go so go listen to that if you want to hear me um, squeeze subtext um, where I can but um, yeah so before we get into the main event and you know we'll get into uh, more on uh, this subject as well. I always want to give everybody just a, a moment to kind of shout out a movie that you've watched recently that you enjoyed, maybe reflects your taste, or maybe it was a movie we didn't pick to talk about. Like, what's something you watched recently that's uh, you've enjoyed? Hmm. I, oh, I did watch one that everyone has been telling me and shouting at me about for a very long time, uh, which was Tigers Are Not Afraid. And I ended up giving that five stars. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. Oh, I still haven't. I still haven't watched that one yet. Is it still on Shudder? Yeah, I think it's still on Shudder. And I thought that actually had a lot to say about gender too, but in a very different way. So I think that's definitely relevant. Okay, okay. I will um move it up the list so that way I can definitely check that one out. Because my life was consumed by Final Destination, obviously, for quite a bit. Um, and, you know, maybe not, because this isn't really horror, but um, it's genre adjacent. 
and I don't know if it will make it onto the podcast at any point, but I did finally watch Dread the other day, the the remake, the Carl Urban one. Um, oh, I've seen that. Yeah, I finally gave it a watch. Um, I, I'd been meaning to, and then it was never streaming, and then it's finally available to stream. And um, it's pretty lit. Um, it is really fun. It's like a you know, like simple premise, you know, but... What I did not expect coming out of that movie is we have, like, this badass female villain, and then we also have this, mm-hmm. like, badass, you know, co-lead in the movie, female lead, and I was like, oh my god, I love the woman power here, there was, like, no no sexual bullshit going on, you know, except for the time that they tried to be dirty, and then they, like, spin it around, and then she, like, makes a guy piss his pants, like it's great. Um, I love um, uh, love the girl power coming out of Dread. That was a, a surprise for me. So um, I definitely want to shout that out before we get going. But um, oh, we do. Yeah. yeah, it was it was good. It, it was fun. Um, so definitely check those two out if you guys have not seen them. But I think we are nice and warmed up to get to our main event films of the episode. (laughs) Possessor, released in 2020, written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg. Uh, We're going to start with uh, the younger of the Cronenberg boys here. And this film is one of the more recent ones we've talked about on the podcast. We don't get to talk as many recent films. So um, this film just came out. It was one of the most talked about films of 2020 easily. Cronenberg um, is known, you know, similar to his father for tackling films with, you know, taboo subjects, but then coming at them with um, this vileness and the um, and the violence um, I really liked Cronenberg's uh, film Antiviral um, that stars uh, Caleb Landry-Jones. Was a big fan of that one. Uh, not too many people talked about it. It came out back in 2012. Um, but it was definitely like a good, like, okay, like you, you know what you're getting from this director. And then, so people were pretty excited whenever um, the trailer for Possessor dropped. Um, This is a neon-rated film. They tend to churn out some really great genre films. And, um, yeah, this film was released digitally, and then it was also released with an uncut version. The uncut version is definitely... uh, The first time I watched it, I watched the uncut version this most recent time. I couldn't find the uncut version anymore. It's just the regular one now. But... If you guys haven't seen Possessor, just want to make sure you guys go and watch the film because we are going to spoil it and this is a fairly recent film. So, once again, pause the episode, go watch Possessor. Um, it's on Hulu currently, um, if you have Hulu. And then, come back and listen. So now, Ren, what made you want to talk about Possessor today? I mean, I think this film just has so many possible reads to it because of the way it's written and I love all of them like it can be a trans allegory it can be a metaphor about mental illness a read on capitalism and how it's destroying our society all of them are great (laughs) yeah it has many different meanings that it could have but then at the same time um it's also vague enough to where you can just like you know it 
touches on enough of them without the movie feeling like a like statement movie but at the same time it does like have just like some big questions that's tackling with this interesting premise of assassins possessing people's bodies and then carrying out the assassinations what that does to the human psyche and um you know when you start to question identity so you know the the trans allegorical readings are like definitely there i mean we you know have a sex scene where the person switches you know faces and we go from man to a woman both with a penis and it's just like hey it's it's here it's here which if you guys didn't see the uncut version you did get significantly less dong and that disappointed me in rewatching the rated version you know we need more dong in horror for sure but um but yeah there's there's definitely all the all the themes are there though when... yeah i think i mean that's the most explicit scene where people have been able to drive but there's so many other parts of this film that reinforce that allegory yeah like the the idea of like you know the the literal idea of you know vaz is kind of she's living this life you know she has this job and she's also she has this family and her boss is you know consistently telling her like you know you're you're great at your job but you'd be even better if you didn't have these emotional attachments and stuff and you have Vaz kind of questioning living this life and she's literally rehearsing the motions for it and rehearsing the way that she interacts with her family so it's like this idea of like living a life that's not yours you know and like wondering what the true life that you should be living is you know there there could be that emotional read on it as well potentially oh yeah a lot of this could just read as how you you can feel like you're living a double life when you're not out essentially it messes with your sense of self which is another thing I think this film does really well is it shows her losing her grip on who she is in a very relatable way (laughs) yes and you know Cronenberg with his with his imagery you know also makes it this this visceral experience on like you know really tapping into the just this like you know internal conflict that you're you know someone could be having you know if they are um, in the position of like kind of living that double life aspect. I'm not gonna lie, when I first saw the movie, I didn't love it. Um, it might have been just the hype factor. I was a little bit late seeing it. But what I noticed in like rewatching it though, it was like I was watching like a whole different movie. It was like I like remembered aspects from it, but then like it's a it's a movie that like just depending on your head state, like you're gonna get like a different experience out of it. Um, so it's definitely works on like a rewatch aspect, um, of it for sure. I really like alternate timelines. Um, this is, uh, supposed to be in an alternate 2008, apparently. Interesting, very specific year choice, but it's never really, uh, touched upon. But I, I like these, um, um, have you seen the movie, uh, The Double with, uh, Jesse Eisenberg? It kind of feels like that. No. You should check it out. It's um it's um with Jesse Eisenberg and Mia uh Wasa Wasikowska, however you say her name. 
and um it's like yeah i never know how to pronounce the name <laughs> and it it has this like out of time what year really is it you know it's kind of futuristic but not um i really i think that's um you know one of the easier biggest strengths of possessor is um this uh world building aspect that comes with it um you know and it being able to take a, a vague premise to like still explore like a very relatable human topic. Yeah, I I agree. I think that it does the world building so well. And what I like most about it is that it doesn't feel the need to info dump these things to you. Like if you notice, you notice, and if you don't, you don't. It it's not gonna hold your hand and point everything out to you. Yeah, no, not at all. It's um it knows that you're going to ask questions, but it's not like spoon feeding you the answers. It, it's not really concerned with that. And I think it's like even knowing that I think that's like one thing that like frustrates me about the film is that it it has all these interesting ideas coming up and then it's choosing to explore like this one corner, this like one very violent corner of this whole premise like well, if they can possess people to kill people, like, why aren't they using this to, like, do all their things? And then comes into this whole other, like, thing. Like, people could be doing sexual fantasies with this possessing technology. Like, there's a lot going on, but we're just focusing on people killing people. It's fine. I'm all for it. I love the violence. But then, like, you know, when you do have this premise that just, like, begs for so much more, like, digging through, I'm like, it, it frustrates me. But that's not the movie's fault yeah well I know what you mean because it's like that's such an invasive ability to be able to have over people and we don't really see anything outside of this story so it's it's not even really alluded to but you know if they have this technology to take out threats that are like you know business threats then what else is people are people doing with this technology really yeah there's many, many, many questions. And this is a character, you know, story. But at the same time, it's like, I I wish we, at the beginning, got, like, a little bit more um, time with Vaz. Like, I feel like if... I wish they would have, like, opened on, like, her pulling off, like, a successful assassination. And then the next one being, like, showing that she's, like, having the struggles. Because we're, like, kind of just, like, thrown in and it's, like... No, Vaz is this, like, ultimate badass, but then, like, we only see her, like, already struggling from the get-go. So, like, where it jumps in, you know, we have this opening that, like, introduces us to the concept. It's, um, Vaz is calibrating her brain into the body, a, um, thing that we, like, see recurring throughout the film. And it's interesting, because then, like, once you know the premise, and then you rewatch this the second time, I was thinking, I was like, when she's calibrating and she's like wincing in this pain, is it Vaz that's in pain or is it the the gal? Because is Vaz already struggling with maintaining control over people, which we already see that she is. So it's like, oh, like that the opening scene reads completely different on a rewatch. Yeah, you're totally right about the wincing and I I didn't even think about that but yeah we start pretty much from when Voss is she's beginning her decline in the first scene of this film and we don't really have any context other than what other people say it kind of reminds me of John Wick in that 
way where you don't really know anything about him, but then everyone who mentions him is like, oh, <laughs> yeah, literally, <laughs> don't mess with him. <laughs> yeah, literally, people are like vases, like you know, we we're just told like, hey, she's real good at this, and it's like we don't get like the established baseline, but it is a good establishing baseline for like the violence you're gonna see throughout the film with this um you know she she she's supposed to do this assassination cleanly she's given a pistol and then she goes nah and puts the pistol down she goes and decides to like stab the dude like a bunch and um when asked later why she did that she said oh i felt like it was more in character you know vaz trying to play it off but for for some reason she Vaz has a thing. She can't really use guns uh, in this movie. A recurring theme. But um, the, the violence right out the gate is just like... Yeah, she's got a lot of rage. <laughs> yeah. Like, she's very... Like, has these, these violent impulses. Like, that's all she's thinking about when she's, like, with her family. Even while she's having sex, she's just... She's thinking about that throat stab that she did earlier that was, like, real cool. Like, she was real proud of that. She has, yeah, a lot of rage going on. But behind <laughs> this, like, cold, callous, you know, outer exterior, you know, she's, like, even though she's the one that inhabits other people's bodies, she's, like, a walking, like, shell herself. Yeah, she's... It's really taken its toll on her. And, like, when you see her pretending to be herself, the way she would pretend to be one of the people she's possessing, like, really speaks volumes. Yeah, like, uh, the the scene where she's doing it outside her house, like, before she goes in with her family is, like, such a... It's a, it's a great acted scene, but it's just also, like, telling us so much, you know, from this one little action... And then whenever she does eventually go to take over Colin's body, it's like she like kind of relates with him in a way. Like when she like kind of starts going through his daily life and like realizing like, you know, he's another person that's like not truly in control of anything. And she like relates with him, but then is also, you know, sees him as an opportunity, you know, get to the, the, the proper life, I guess, that she's looking for. Yeah, I think she definitely, she sees more of herself in Colin than with a lot of the other ones, which is, I think, why um we get that moment in the sex scene. Because, like, if you look at that sex scene compared to her with her husband, she's so much more, like, she actually participates and is enjoying it and she's in the moment. Whereas when she was with her husband, she was just thinking about the job and killing people. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, like, even in, like, the, like, style of, like, sex they're having, because, like, you see, like, when she was having sex with Michael, like, the, like, one thing that she does do is she, like, goes to, like, violently, like, bite his neck, and that, like, cuts away, and then, like, you know, whenever Colin and Ava are having sex, and they, like, you know, you can tell that, like, they do stuff where they're, like, pulling each other's arms and, like, you know, restraining each other, but, like, in, in the good way, in the fun way. And, um, and Vaz is like, oh, yeah. like, they, they're into the stuff that I'm into, like, <laughs> you know, no, no kink shaming around here. It's a, it's a scene that, yeah, has, um, definitely, like, a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, texts you can read into, but again, you know, you know the, you know the Cronenbergs, they love their, they love their sex scenes and their weird, weird kinky sex scenes, they love it. And well, it- this was actually 
the first Cronenberg film I ever watched, including his dad's. <laughs> oh, between either of them. Interesting. Well, <laughs> whenever once you start going through uh, Daddy Cronenberg's filmography, you're gonna see some. You're gonna see some things. So I don't know how where you've made your way through yet, but um, yeah, this is um, it's there. It's their MO. I've I've seen quite a few. I I started watching uh David Cronenberg's stuff in January this year. I've made my way through most of it now, and it has been a journey. <laughs> Uh, uh yeah he is uh those those kinky <laughs> canadians we gotta love them um and and it's fun like you know watching these two movies together and like seeing the the parallels between their filmmaking uh antiviral yeah. like antiviral didn't have as much like sexual themes but it, it very much had to do with like body and like the 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 physical horror nature of it not as much body horror here per se more than just like lots of weird imagery like um whenever we saw the initial link up whenever um Vaz is going into uh Colin's body I'm like showing this like whole thing um we get more of that kind of stuff than the body horror but we do still get some like you know we get it we get sprinkles of it which would bring us to like when or actually, before we get to the, the killing scene, I did want to touch on um, also when Vaz is working as Colin's job and they're like, you know, cataloging people's curtains or whatever. And um, there's this moment of like voyeurism as well, where like Vaz is like, you know, distracted by like, you know, they're just going through these camera feeds. And of course, you're going to stumble across some people having sex. And it's intriguing to me. You know, because, like, obviously, Vaz wasn't interested in sex with Michael, but then is interested when it comes to, like, Colin and Ava. So it's, like, this element of, like, voyeurism to it, of, like, these sexual experiences, like, outside of their body. Like, all the, there's the layers. I'm seeing the dots. I'm seeing things connecting. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, um... I just get the vibe that with Michael, it's a very vanilla sort of relationship and she might not feel comfortable telling him what she's into or expressing that with him. And when she's not being herself, she kind of has this freedom to experiment with that and see what she likes. Yeah, it's, um, you know, definitely, yeah, like this element of being able to explore through through someone else's shoes but then like i think that's like why the like um whenever Voss has to do the job to take out ava's dad and we have this like you know the girder tells her to like make a scene and like do his thing but like you can like see in like the the delivery of uh, that like Voss is like you know very much feeling what colin feels like against the dad and like about about just like this idea of like being like stepped on. I love the the line like you can't you think you could step on me? I'm a giant. Like, um, I love this this blow up scene. But it's like in in that moment, like you can see like there's it's it's such great acting from uh Christopher Abbott in like these times where you can see like because he's acting as Vaz, but then you can tell when Vaz is more invested in acting like Colin or whenever it's actually like real emotions that they like share together. It's like Chris Rabbit's doing some like real 
special shit in this movie. Oh yeah, he's amazing. And I I really liked him in Black Bear, which I saw recently mm-hmm. with him in. That also messed me up, but in a really good, effective way. <laughs> yeah, he he's really good in Black Bear. He's um I watched him in Piercing recently with uh Mia Mia What's her face. Movie itself, not that great, but I really love Chris Rabbit. Like, he's a great, and it comes at night as well. Like, anything he pops up in, I'm a fan of. I also made this joke on Twitter that I think he has it, like, in his, like, contracts that he must show his ass and or dick in a movie, because almost all of them, he's partially nude at some point, and I'm here for it. I love it. He just throws it out there. Yeah, I was going to say, like, thank you for those contracts. Amazing. (laughs) Like, it, it has to be a clause in there. Just, it has to be at this point. Um, but yeah. I hope uh, so. Or just the directors he gets with are like, they, they know that we will appreciate this from him. <laughs> yes. But I mean, I, I do also think it's just like, it's a like testament to him, like his acting style is he like really is just willing to like go there, you know, for for the scene that he's doing. Oh, yeah. Like he, he's a tall chameleon. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really excited. He has a film coming out with uh, Drag Carmichael that's supposed to be uh, interesting. Drag Carmichael's um, directorial debut. But yeah, great acting from him. Great acting from um, Andrea Eisenbrough as well. Um, most people know her from Mandy. And um, she has like the, you know, these distinct uh, intricacies into her performance that she has as well. But then again, like, then it's just like, that's why it's so impressive that Chris Rabbit's like doing her performance, but then also doing like his performance at the same time. And it's like mind blowing. Yeah, I agree. I'll watch anything for either of them at this point. Like they're two that I'll keep an eye on. <laughs> yeah. And like, and he has great physicality too. Cause like in these scenes of like, you know, in the, in the violent scenes, like where we have like here where he attacks Ava's dad, and then, like, later on in the fight scene as well, like, he has, like, a great physicality that he, like, really, like, brings the intensity to the violence. Like, I don't know. There's something about the way that he, like, swings the fire poker when he's just, like, beating the shit out of Sean Bean. I'm like, I don't know. There's, like, something to it that it just, like, it it pops a little more. And uh, it's a it's a really great scene. And then he digs the teeth out. Mm. Oh, my that. I knew there was going to be body horror moments, but that bit still gets me every time. I mean, I can watch just about anything, but, like, teeth stuff really gets to me. Like, teeth, I don't do well with teeth stuff. But, interesting, though, in the uncut, it's like, this is where, because I saw, uh, I think it was Red Letter Media was, like, talking about, like, oh, it's like the violent scenes are just extra long, and it doesn't add to it. It's just being more egregious. But for like in the context of the movie, though, like I remember in the uncut one where he sticks the fire poker in, it's like really drawn out. It's like methodical and it's like something that like Vaz is intentionally doing, you know, to inflict more pain. Like it does like reflect this like, you know, this rage that Vaz has. The, The scene just plays out like better and more smooth. But like in the regular one, it's like kind of choppy in the way that cuts and that like just like cuts and shows like a quick quick shot of like it in his teeth and like getting ground out but like in the unrated this is like a 
example I would show somebody of like extended violence like does mean more besides like just the violence itself. Yeah, I haven't actually seen the uncut version yet. I I watched the I mean, I haven't seen the cut version. I've only seen the uncut version and I didn't really bother looking at one that had been cut down. But I think like those scenes, they're really the only time Voss is expressing that level of any emotion because all the way through the film, she's she's pretty collected even when things are going down like she stays calm but in those moments she's very very unhinged yeah like this is this is like yeah Vaz like really like she only shows like two emotions and then you know (laughs) violent rage is one of them and um yeah so you it's it's very violent and um so then then as after this happens later on is um we 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 continue to see Vaz kind of having this like slip on control, and eventually, whenever she is like has to call in reinforcements to like help her like regain like control, um, they like have this like little psychic battle, and then Colin like essentially takes over, but Vaz is still trapped in his body and like sharing sharing the memories, and like when you have this like personality bleed over between the two of them, it's like taking on this like double life, you know, theme that they're carrying out throughout the film and like, you know, playing it like quite literally. And, and, and it's interesting because like, I remember the first time I watched this, I like, I felt so bad for Colin. I still do. Like, I mean, Colin's, you know, a victim in this movie for the most part, but the second time around, is whenever I started seeing this as Vaz also being a victim, you know, because Gerder has been manipulating her this whole time, doesn't have regard, like, Gerder knows that she's, like, suffering, like, permanent damages, like, nah, leave her in, she needs to fight this off on her own, like, and so the second time around, watching as, like, Vaz also a victim, and then so, like, this idea of, like, these two victims, like, going at each other, and then it's just, like, damn, this sucks, like, because, like, it just sucks all around for both of them, you know, up until at the end, then I'm kind of questioning where Vaz sits on the, on the, uh, on the scale, so it's interesting, it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that works with the allegory, especially with the capitalism allegory, because what, big corporations like that tend to do is turn people against each other about issues that don't really matter but Mm. I have such a specific read when it comes to Voss that I actually don't view Gerda as an antagonist the way a lot of other people do Mm. please please give me more of that take (laughs) so basically I look at Voss as someone who lives outside of the gender binary and the way she loses her humanity kind of speaks to me about how it feels to live day in day out in a society that like isn't like you basically because it wears you down like microaggressions and things like that if you're marginalized in any way like that builds up over time mm-hmm. and it wears you down to a point where you question like how much of yourself is there and Voss has all those moments but to me Gerda is 
she's kind of the only person encouraging Voss not to live like the way people expect her to and is being like it's okay to not want a husband and a family and to like live as who you really are and I just get a completely different read from her because I see her as someone who's telling Voss like it's okay to go against the norm yeah I mean I will actually agree like yes uh Gerder is definitely like the only one that's like yeah no like this is who you are you you are who you are you're good at what you're good at but I just always I still see it in a way that it's like because it's convenient to Gerder that yeah encouraging Vaz to be his person because it in turn helps Gerder get more you know work and find her replacement eventually so it's like yes I do agree (laughs) but at the same time it's like you know Gerder still is um you know in her corner for through the circumstances as Um, long as it serves her like you said yeah I agree with that yeah, which is great, though. I mean, that's what makes this, like, such an interesting dynamic and, like, you know, what makes the, the finale so interesting in when mm-hmm. uh, Colin goes to find Boz's family because he has access to her memories um, and is going to go kill them if he, like, you know, can't, re- he wants her out of him. And, um, and it leads into this whole thing but, and it's like, it plays, you know, Gerder is like influencing the situation, but at the same time, Vaz does make her choice, you know, in basically baiting Colin into killing Michael through, through their mind connection. But Colin, you know, Colin just sees it as like, oh, I'm, I'm killing your family. So it's like, he's, he gets his win, but then she's also like, oh yeah, go, go ahead, I guess, go ahead and kill him. And then, you know, we have this, like... Yeah, she's literally just like, do it, Colin. What are you waiting for? (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, you know, and there I'm like, okay. But then after, in the midst of this mind game, then after that, little Ira comes out and shoots Colin. And then Colin shoots Ira. (laughs) And I'm like, I mean, people of the podcast know... I love it when you kill kids. It's great. But something about this one is more brutal because it's like when you see it happen and then you know in your mind that Vaz is actually in control at that moment. It's like, oh, oh, like that's that's intense. And like the the first time that scene is probably the one that does that to most people. They walk away ruined from that scene. I'm like it's a because because the first time I saw it I didn't really think about it as Vaz still doing it I like I don't know if I like like was keeping up at the time but then like the second time around whenever I like can tell the differences because again like seeing the clues in Christopher Abbott's performance like you can tell who is in control at that like moment and then once seeing it you know that's Vaz and it's like damn that's fucked up and again, it's like, you know, yeah, Gerder's happy for her, but then Gerder's also happy that it's like, oh, yeah, finally. Now I, I will have my replacement and everything. Well, yeah, then you find out that Gerda was controlling Ira. Yeah. Anyway, so 
the manipulation of like what Ira would have experienced in that scene is crazy because it's got so many layers to who's controlling Colin and who's controlling Ira. Yeah, yeah. It's like two instances of, you know, <laughs> two different entities controlling one by a circle of control happening. It's fucked up. It's 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 fucked up, guys. You know, and it's funny this movie, it even though for all of its violence and stuff, it's not as violence as violent as people make it out to be. It's already kind of got that reputation that it's like this like fucked up thing for two hours and it's, it's not. There's a lot of meditation and just like, you know, like looking at things. And um there's there's a lot more to it, but the the violence is like so effective and just the way that's used and the way it's framed. Um, yeah, great film. It, it is a great film, yeah. but, um, it, watch it multiple I times. I agree with that, though. And, like, I, I think, like, the violence, I, I like the story, the violence, it's more about emotional impact than it is about shocking the audience, necessarily. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I mean, it, it, it is there and does do its job of being shocking, but, like, it's not only there for that purpose like it um you know has clear narrative purposes through it and um yeah well well written Mm -hmm. well directed but now we need to see where um where brandon got it from and we're gonna check out what a daddy cranenberg's movies (laughs) shivers or the parasite murders or Orgy of the Blood Parasites, or They Came From Within. Uh, This movie has, like, five different titles. Released in 1975, written and directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, I said his name, like, really Canadian-like before the the transition. I don't know where that came from. Um, But, yeah, this was... Um, I've, I've seen quite a bit of Cronenberg's films, but this was one that I just hadn't seen. It's lesser known but at the same time this is still one of his like earlier like regarded films of like when he was like kind of uh on the up and up and um I really like this film if you guys haven't seen it it's about um this uh the inhabitants of this um apartment complex this like slightly like utopian like area it's like a tower of like the Stepford neighborhood um it's and it's all these people and they're they're on an island but they live in this like nice resort tower thing and um it's overran by uh sex parasites um and it's exploring the idea of uh humans indulging in their primal desires so had you seen this one before ren uh yeah this is actually one of the first cronenberg films I saw just because a friend recommended it to me so enthusiastically I ended up watching this one before a bunch of others and I really liked it yeah it has this it has this um it kind of has like the tone of uh the original Wicker Man um it's like everybody is like just like kind of slightly off um it has like this like kooky vibe to it uh most of this movie is like daytime it's very bright um, the interiors of these rooms are like very colorful and even the hallways and elevators. Um, it's a like very bright 
kind of bubbly movie. Um, it has like some like it has very weird humor to it, and everybody has weird names. It's like a uh, high rise meets Slither, but in the seventies. Um, it's it's really this movie is really fun. It opens up with um a murder of a woman. This man is killing her. One, he has his shirt off. We already have a, a murder happening with the killer being shirtless. Um, it kills her, and then you see him pouring like acid in her in her stomach, or what we'll find out later be acid, and um and that's what like opens the movie, and um we're trying to figure out why this scientist uh went mad, and it turns out he was engineering a uh parasite that was um quote unquote a combo of an aphrodisiac and a venereal disease. Because he believed that man thought too much and would ignore their primal instincts. But um, the uh, side effects of this parasite is people just want to either sexually assault each other or kill each other. And um, this tower eventually uh, goes really mad. Um, uh, it's, it's really fun. It's also, is it a coincidence that these parasites look like fleshy penises? Who's to say? <laughs> I mean, it was. It is definitely not a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, you know. Again, when you go through Cronenberg's filmography, um, he touches on sex and desire and lust and a lot of these themes quite often, and uh, a lot of the times exploring like this idea of indulging, you know, in your sexual desires and like, and the idea of like when you indulge in your sexual desires, that's not a bad thing except when it is a bad thing, you know, is kind of the the area that he's usually, like, kind of going for. Like, I mean, and, it, and it's funny, like, you know, he'll even have lines of dialogue that are very on the nose about it. Like, he, you know, Kronberg's not known for a subtlety either, you know. There's a scene where one of the parasitic zombie people is just saying, Everything is erotic. Everything is sexual. Love it is is a disease between foreign alien creatures. Um, e- even dying is sexual. You know, like these these are the lines. Kronberg is just telling you, you know, what he's exploring. But he does it in a very fun way. Like uh, I like the uh, kind of mystery setup of this whole movie, and then just like the slow deterioration of like things get progressively weirder and weirder and then everybody's trying to rape each other and that's like oh god what's happening right now but the the film has a a a funness about it though in a weird way (laughs) no i agree with that it's definitely it's one of those films i like should i be laughing at this (laughs) and you do anyway yeah like it it again like i love this um like i love 70s horror um i love it when they kind of have this like I don't know dreamlike aesthetic to it you know it's you're watching you know real people but they're not real people even though that's every movie that sounds really dumb but (laughs) if you if you get what I mean I don't know 70s horror just has a very specific like feel to it and like the way that actors would perform and like it, it feels like just like a bad dream Oh, yeah, totally agree. And I think, you know, if you put on three films from different decades, it would be easy to spot which one was from the 70s. Exactly. Like, yeah, like it's, 
it, you, you just know uh, when you see it. And, um, but yeah, the way that things just like kind of, cause you're, you're following like an ensemble here. Like you're following like this main doctor, Dr. St. Luke, but then there's, um, this character, Nick, that is like kind of the harbinger of the, of the parasites initially, or no, well, he got it from the test subject, which we find out like that's who was getting killed at the beginning was like this test subject of the scientist who apparently slept with a few people in the apartments because like, that's just like a recurring thing, you know, like people are kind of being free amongst each other and there's cheating and there's, there's multiple lesbian characters in this film. That's where the, the queerness comes in. But I like that, you know, even though it does result in someone getting infected with a parasite and like, yes, you can read into it that way. But at the same time, like throughout the film, like, no like it's never like mentioned or anything and then we're just like kind of dropped in it's just like oh hey by the way this queer this character is queer now and it's just kind of a thing but and it's just like kind of dropped in and it's very casual and then like later on throughout the film when you're seeing um all these people just like going progressively crazier you'll just see there's there's lots of women making out in the background there's dudes making out in the background there's uh these like gay parasite guys and speedos running around and it's just really it just kind of it, it just happens you know it's just like I, I like how casual it is about it. it's just weirdness that comes out of nowhere i love it yeah we love to see it and i personally prefer it when films don't necessarily make a big deal out of its queerness it's not like look at what we're doing we're putting queer characters in here and it it's just like yeah it makes sense too <laughs> yeah like it, it's not like there wasn't like a, a scene early on like being like oh yeah and you know about those gay people in these apartments you know like they, they it's never there it's just like the first scene we see is you know the scene between uh the two women in the apartment and it's just pretty it's pretty casual stuff around here I love watching movies that, you know, just, like, are this eventual just downward spiral, you know, because just, like, you feel like after the second half of this movie, just, like, literally every character you encounter is just, like, getting attacked, and eventually you, like, come to the end of this movie, and they, like, escape, you know, the, the apartments, and then um, you just find out that it's like, oh, Montreal now is just, like, getting infected by all these parasites, and it's just like this spiral that just like goes down and it's just like, oh, well, and everybody loses also. Yeah, I really love how chaotic this film is. I I just think it's such a wild moment. Like it starts on such an intense note and then it doesn't really give you a break until the end. Yeah, no, it just um the you know, the the effects on the um on the little parasites, it's like it's they don't look the best as far as like practical effects go but at the same time it like really adds to it and it just like makes them like look even like more disgusting in the way they like slither around and again just like this visual oh. representation of like bloody dildos running around uh we love it a lot of nipples in this uh movie that's just a note that i just saw as i was scrolling every time they have a shirt on it's just like poof, everywhere <laughs> We want more nipples in horror movies. Yeah, and then the character that that plays Nick, that is like the like lead one that like has all things. 
effectively like really just like off-putting and uncomfortable um uh one of the more actual like truly horrific scenes in this movie because like there's a lot of i won't say it's a dark comedy but a lot of time it feels like it or it's like a lot of the the horror isn't um like you know like it, it doesn't feel like terror filled there is like a scene where um where nick is like pretty much about to like rape his wife and like using the like marriage as like a as a reasoning that is like one of the like true like the scariest scene of the film because that's just like you know he's infected by his parasite that's like enhancing his like primal urges and just like the rationale behind that just like was so scary and is like delivery and stuff truly like that's like an actual scary scene in this film most of this film is like fun chaos but like there are like sprinkles of like oh that's like very disgusting and disturbing yeah there's so that scene is probably just one of the hardest to watch out of probably all of his films for me to be honest just because of like you said the mentality behind doing that is so genuinely scary yeah like he, he, he like definitely like and and luckily that's like it in like the midway point and then the rest of it okay well now we've hit this like extreme dark note out the gate now the rest of the movie <laughs> isn't gonna feel nearly as bad and we can like actually have fun again but it's just like uh it's like a very like shocking scene for sure really shows like again like why Cronenberg is like one of the best like horror directors like the the nature of like the way he crafts that scare like in the context of the film is um quite genius though like you know doing its job and being effectively uncomfortable um but after that it's just basically a mad scooby-doo chase um around this uh apartment tower between you got the doctor running around he's trying to save him and his nurse lover um and they're running around but then she gets infected by one of the other apartment tenants and then uh the scientist old partner like also shows up to like try to help everything he's running around he gets infected and it again it feels like a like the third act feels like just like a scooby-doo chasing it's like they like come out of the elevators and it's just oh it's a hallway of people trying to like make out with you but also trying to like kill you and like rip you apart and it's just like it's, it's so odd like the way that people attack in this movie like cracks me up <laughs> I just love the phrasing of how this is essentially if Cronenberg did a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, that is, like, kind of the vibe. Like, again, like, there's just a scene. It's like, uh, elevator opens and it's just already a swarm of people. And that's, like, some Scooby-Doo editing right there. Or, like, when he, like, goes outside and he, it like... It truly is. When, when St. Luke, like, uh, you know, he thinks he, he escapes out the window and he's, like, about to run up the hill... And then just out of the shadows, it's just a wall of, like, more sex zombies. And it's just like, god damn it, and has to run back into the, like, into the apartments. That's some Scooby-Doo shit. <laughs> oh my god, agreed. And now I'm never going to be able to look at this film the same way again, though. <laughs> yeah, that would be, yeah. Uh, let's get the, let's get, um let's get Brandon to do a modern Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> rated R now. There's going to be a Mystery Inc. orgy scene. It's going to be great. 
Oh my god, please. This is everything I've ever wanted. Yeah, so good. Um, and, and like I said, like, the, the, for this movie, like, once the chaos starts, it just doesn't stop. And it literally just doesn't stop through the end of the movie. I like the way that <laughs> we open the movie with this, um, radio ad, like, being an ad for the apartments and, like, why it's such a good place to live and how, how nice the community is and all this stuff. And then it ends with just a radio ad of being like, yeah, there's been a swarm of, you know, this influx of sexual assaults around Montreal. And it, like, we don't know what's going on. And it's just like, and that's literally just the credits. Uh, I really love that. Like, Cronenberg uh, is a bit of a nihilist. Um, and But I love a good fuck you ending as well. Oh, I love a nihilistic ending. And I'm not going to lie, that intro with the advert, both times I've watched this film, I've been like, am I watching the right thing? Yeah, it feels like, is this a, I thought I was watching this without ads. And then it, it fits in so perfectly, though. Like a, like yeah, a, like agreed. a forever. I was just like, this is Shivers, right? <laughs> like I said, it, it could have been Shivers. It could have been um the Parasite Murders or They Came From Within. Could have been any of those movies. It was released as They Came From Within in the U.S., um, the Parasite Murders was in Canada, and then uh, Shivers in Canada and UK. But the shooting title was yeah, Orgy so that's of Blood Parasites. I don't know of it as Shivers, but the Parasite Murders is also a very intriguing title. I would have watched that too. They were shooting under Orgy of the Blood Parasites, and I think I think that's my favorite one. But you know, because I I can't think of too many movie yeah. titles with <laughs> Orgy in it. Nobody has used Orgy. In, in movie titles enough. RG Blood and Parasites are all... Those words are going to grab your attention in a title. <laughs> I think we should do that for titles instead of like... Because even though Shivers is a, a pretty good title, but like I hate one word titles like now. I think they're a little bit overdone. We should just pick three random words from the movie and then that's just the title. And like that's what it would be from Shivers. It's got blood, it's got parasites, it's got an orgy. Boom. There we go. I agree with that. Movie titles just as the vibe of the film. That would be great. Yes, I would love that. Um, but yeah, Shivers, uh, <laughs> really fun. Really fun movie. If you guys haven't seen it, um, it is earlier in Cronenberg's catalog. So um, it, if you haven't seen like past, you know, the classics, you know, um, this one is definitely worthy of checking out uh, on a lot of like free streaming um, places with ads right now so easy to watch um, if you guys still have not seen it after listening to us talk about it to close out the episode you know obviously it's um you know very prevalent between uh, both Cronenberg's um, in their films but um, why do you think horror has been such a popular vehicle for queer stories I mean I think horror is great for anyone who is kind of othered in some way, no matter what way that is. But particularly queer people were kind of painted as monsters by people anyway. And then in films were coded as the villains. So like we see ourselves a lot more in horror than I would say other genres personally. Yeah, I think it is the, you know, like how you said, like, um, being depicted as as freaks or monsters um you know it's like it kind of you know reminds me of like recently you know speaking of uh queer people 
So Lil Nas X, when he released his video for, for Montero, Call Me By Your Name, amazing video. And just like the the response to it, you know, he does this ultra queer video. He's given Satan a lap dance and he's basically was saying like, well, you guys say I'm going to hell. Well, I'm I beat you to it. This is hell for me. Boom. Here you go. And then he's criticized for doing that, too. You know, in this like, you know, well, if you're going to call me a monster, like I'll be a monster. You call me a demon. I'll be a demon. You know, and he like it does it, but then it's like, and then the response is still like, you know, the other way, and it's just like, damn, we can't win, but we can damn make good art out of it, though. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that everything he's released lately has been amazing and super queer, and just very much of the attitude of fuck it, I'm just gonna be myself anyway because I can't win, <laughs> like you said. Yeah, if you want me to be a monster, I will go ahead and do that for you. Yeah, that's why I've realized, you know, in in watching, you know, horror films and then kind of, you know, again, like either taking the queer stories that I do see or even interpreting them uh, in a light. It's like, you know, where do you see yourself like in a in, in a fear based way that you also feel comfortable in? And I think that is like what i search for i guess when it comes to like uh queer stories when it comes to horror films is like being like you know fear is okay you know how do you how are you comfortable in it and um i think that's why um it why it works really well for queer stories you know especially in the um personal aspects of it you know being specific to you as a person yeah I agree and I think like as queer people we have to deal with other people's fear a lot as well Mm -hmm. and like the just fear and the way we make them feel about themselves so I just think horror is such a great place for to kind of like empower people who are painted that way like films like um hello mary lou and stuff like that where it's just like yeah i'm gonna be a monster and unapologetic about it and not give a shit what anyone thinks yeah especially if it's like you know like you said like the fear that they have of you you know and you know be like okay well if you're gonna you know make that a fear like i'm gonna make that power you know so um super great and i appreciate having you on to have this conversation and dive into some queer themes in horror films. Um, very excited for the rest of the month, and this is a perfect way to kick it off. So thank you so much, Ren, uh, for coming onto the show. Thank you for having me. I love your podcast so much. Oh, thank you so much. And the podcast loves you back. <laughs> Uh, what you working on and where can the people find you? Uh, so right now I'm working on a book called Transplantation and a podcast called Six Sad Monsters. And as we record this, it's the day before the first episode drops. So by the time this comes out, it'll already be online. So I'll just go listen to that. Otherwise, everyone can find me on Twitter at B underscore Banshee. I am so excited for your podcast. I can't wait to listen to it, um, especially after getting a little preview of how you are on the mic. So very excited for that. I will include. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, I will include all that in the show notes and everything. 
next episode, we're talking about gay vampires. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. That would be real sweet of you. But that is going to go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday next week. We are talking The Hunger and Fright Night. Make sure you are following the podcast page at Bloody Blunt CC. And make sure you're following your boy at underscore Daddy Disco. And until next time, guys, stay lifted.